0: The next stop, Sprawlcast.
1: You're listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Clausus, and I'm the editor in chief of the Sprawl. Sprawlcast is made in collaboration with CGSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, and we are podcasting/slash broadcasting from Treaty 7 territory. Sprawlcast is a show for curious Calgarians who want a deeper understanding of the city they call home. We go deep to bring you local stories that matter. Stories like this one.
0: Your new council will pull together around a common vision that makes us more resilient as a city. We will set the bar high to deliver on your expectations.
2: For me, I think that I deserve to lose that election. I think that I that my view of the role of mayor was way too myopic. It was too It was too narrow. And I think that I gave a hell of a lot of people a hell of a lot of reasons not to vote for me.
1: A lot can change in a couple years. It's been just over two years since the last municipal election in Calgary, and it's two years till the next one. In other words we're at the halfway point of the current city council. So it seems like a good time to take stock of the past couple years. And a strange thing has happened since the last election. Calgary politics have been turned a little upside down in some ways. Two years ago, progressives were rooting for Jyoti Gondek to defeat Jeremy Farkas in the mayoral election. And that's what happened. But after losing, Farkas left Calgary, went into a kind of self-imposed exile, raised a pile of money for charity, and came back sounding very different than he did on the campaign trail. I've heard from numerous Calgarians who voted for Gondek who have found themselves aligned with Farkas more recently, and disappointed by the mayor on files like the Arena deal more impressed by the candidate they voted against than the one they voted for. That is a strange place to be in, and more than a few people have wondered aloud, what sort of topsy-turvy alternate world is this? What's going on? And at the same time, some who voted for Farkas are also thrown by his recent statements and positions. There are many examples, but here's just one. Here's Farkas on Twitter to Councillor Dan McLean, right before Council approved the housing strategy. Quote, You gave the Flames affordable housing. Now, please do the same for the rest of us. End quote. And then someone quips in reply, St. Farkas, enough! See, Twitter can still be funny sometimes. In this episode, we're going to hear from Mayor Gondick. We're going to hear from, not Mayor, Jeremy Farkas. And we're going to dig into what's changed since that election day two years ago. Think back to the fall of 2021. I forgot how weird that election was. The pandemic had been grinding on for a year and a half at that point, And that election unfolded at a remove, distant from the warmth of human contact. It was the socially distanced election, and you could feel it. There was a citywide fatigue. I chatted with former Mayor Nahed Nenshi about it
3: on election morning outside the Bridgeland Market. And I don't know if it's just me because of where I sit, but I don't feel a lot of joy. You know, in every other election that I've been involved in, there's been optimism about something. Maybe it's optimism about lower taxes. Maybe it's optimism about building a new C-train. But in this one, I just feel like there's a lot of nose-holding among voters. I think that's a shame because there's good people running for councillor, for mayor, for trustee. And we should be excited about the decisions we're making for the future. The race had come down to two people, both of who
1: had served as councillors the previous term, Gondek and Farkas. In the early going... Farkas was thought to be the front-runner. He was the conservative, often aligned with the provincial UCP, and he'd forged a narrative of himself as an outsider who was taking on the City Hall establishment. Jyoti Gondik was the more centrist candidate, a former university professor with a PhD in urban sociology. Gondik spoke often of trusting the experts, and regularly scrapped with the UCP on social media. Both Gondik and Farkas were contrarians. Both caused various headaches for then-Mayor Nenshi. But Farkas took his acrimonious approach pretty far, even getting thrown out of council at one point.
0: Farkas did not apologize and did not retract his Facebook post, so council unanimously voted to eject him from the meeting.
1: This all made for exciting fireworks. Farkas knew how to hog a camera and grab a headline. But when it came to being mayor, there were questions, even among conservatives, on whether or not he was up to it. Before the last election, I asked Preston Manning about this. Manning is an elder statesman in right-wing Canadian politics. He founded the Federal Reform Party in the 1980s, and more recently was hired by Premier Danielle Smith's government to lead a review of the province's pandemic response. But when I spoke to Manning two years ago, he was on his way out of the Calgary Petroleum Club, where Farkas had just had a meet-and-greet with a bunch of the city's well-heeled elites. I know you've had some kind of concerns about his first term in terms of the way he approached relationships and administration. Well,
2: no, not concerned, not just him, but any of anyone that is in a more an opposition role. And I, I was for nine years in the parliament, always always in opposition. There's a danger that you become basically a critic of other people's positions and you find out that even if you put out alternatives the media are much more interested in the controversy of being a critic than you putting out some new idea and there's a danger that you become a a no person an opposition person that's your mentality Uh, and then the challenge is if you if you're going to be on the other side if you're going to be in the government if you're going to head a a civic administration then then you've got to make that shift to uh, how, how can you lead a positive constructive operation and I've had that discussion uh, with him and with a number of other kind of opposition-type politicians.
1: After speaking with Manning, I waited a while for Farkas to come out. When he did, he did something unusual for him. I'd never known Farkas to turn down a media interview. Quite the opposite. At City Hall, he'd linger around the TV cameras, practically begging to be interviewed. But now, a couple weeks before the election... And with Gondic up in the poles, Farkas wouldn't talk. And I found myself chasing him down Fifth Avenue.
2: Did you get out of that what you wanted? I would say your probably request about the events would be best directed to the organizers. You won't talk about it? But I'm, I'm happy to talk to anybody. Well, how do you think it went
1: in there? All right, take care. This was something I hadn't seen in Farkas before. Fear. It was a lot different from his bombastic confidence as a councillor. He seemed to know how election day was going to go.
0: Well, we have some breaking news tonight. CTV is declaring Jody Gondek elected as Calgary's new mayor. She replaces Nahed Nanshi after 11 years, and she is Calgary's first female mayor. We will set the bar high to deliver on your expectations, and we will remain accountable to all of you. Having listened to you over the last four years on council, as well as the last nine months on the campaign trail, you have asked me to lead with a steady hand as we emerge from economic turmoil and a pandemic. I will ensure that we stay focused on a recovery that is rooted in economic, social, and environmental resiliency.
1: In his concession speech, Farkas struck a very different tone than the one he had governed and
2: campaigned on. And congratulations to Mayor-elect Jody Gondek. Thank you, Jody, for your tremendous service and your incredible vision of tremendous potential that you put forward for a city and that platform that you earned the trust of Calgarians to execute on.
1: I heard a number of people say that if we saw that Farkas on the campaign trail, we might have voted for him. Where was that guy when he was on council? But he did get a little speech writing help, as Nenshi told me on election day.
3: I won't tell you who, but one of the mayoral candidates, and it would surprise you which one, sent me a note this morning saying, can I have a little help with my speeches tonight? (laughs) And uh, so I gave him some advice on what he might want to say if he wins and what he might want to say if he loses. Interesting. So he reached out to you. Yeah. That particular candidate is very good about reaching out, actually, which would surprise most people.
1: Since winning the election in 2021, Mayor Gondik has suffered from low approval ratings. Not just Gondik, but the entire city council.
3: Right now, Calgary's first female mayor sits at 38% support, with just 9% unsure of how they feel about her performance. Council as a whole, not much better. Just 37% approve of their performance.
1: That was in March of 2022. But subsequent polls, including one this past summer, show not much difference. The mayor and council remain unpopular with Calgarians. I sat down with Mayor Gondik in October and asked what she considers her biggest accomplishment so far. She identified three policy areas. One, the housing strategy that was approved in September. Two, the downtown strategy. And three, council's declaration of a climate emergency.
0: By doing the climate declaration, we were able to draw $300 million from the federal government to green our fleet. So um, to have electric buses running um, on our streets in the near future, there's about a $100 million investment from council and 300 followed from the federal government. Those are really the three big projects that I think of immediately that align with our vision and values as a council. So it has been two years of accomplishing some really big and much-needed work.
1: But the first thing Gondik mentioned before all of those was how this council functions.
0: I came into this role um, having very clearly stated that I wanted to build relationships amongst council. And I wanted this council to be strong and very collaborative. And so some of the decisions that we've made have been unanimous. Others have been pretty powerful with a 13-2 or 12-3 vote. So I think um, we have all worked very hard to build those collaborative relationships. We've tried very hard as well to have good civil discourse And we've tried to use process and procedure to the benefit of the public so that we are debating things in a respectful manner, that we are being clear and transparent about what the decision is that we're making, and that we take the time to explain the steps involved.
1: This brought to mind the arena deal, which Council approved unanimously. Council is putting up $831 million in cash to build a new arena complex, nearly three times what the previous council committed to in 2019. The Flames are putting up only $40 million to start, and then the Flames will pay back $316 million over the next 35 years. And this decision threw a lot of Calgarians off, making them ask, what just happened? It wasn't just the decision, but the unanimous nature of it. On the last council, there was usually some dissent on big decisions like this. So whatever your views were, you could to some extent see your perspective reflected on council, even if your side didn't win. But now council was moving in complete lockstep after hashing things out behind closed doors. I asked Gondek about the arena deal. So why this big an expenditure now?
0: I think one of the significant points with um, the arena deal this time around is the transparency around how much it's going to cost and what the investments actually are. You know, the fact that there's no downtown community rink, and now we will have one, the fact that there are public realm improvements and public gathering places that are involved in this, and honestly, the infrastructure work that's going to be required to make this project a go. That was not in the previous deal. So we were on the hook as the city for those, you know, $300 million to do the infrastructure improvements, to do the 6th Street underpass and all of the work that's needed. So I think what happened in 2019 and then was compounded negatively in 2021 when we had another decision point, there was a finite amount of money and we were trying to shoehorn a project into it. And I believe what we would have seen if we had stuck on that path Is ballooning costs. And then we would have had to go back and redesign, right? And I think we would have just been in a situation where no one wanted to admit that that deal was not the right deal anymore.
1: The transparency point was an interesting one to me, since the way this deal was done was so much less transparent than the last one. In 2019, the last deal was presented by city administration and debated on the floor of council and then approved. And I asked Gondik about the lack of transparency on this deal. The public didn't get to see any of the discussion that we got to see last time and see kind of what are the pros and cons and see the working out of this in public. And then you all emerged with this unanimous vote in favour. And I'm curious how you justify that given the size of the expenditure and the significance of it.
0: I appreciate that question, and, um, you know, it's a good question to ask why the difference in process. The thing that we learned not only from that deal, but also from the Olympics, if anyone remembers that file, we are not at our best when we are negotiating publicly. And I understand that transparency is important, and we have to be honest with Calgarians about what's on the table and what's being discussed. Um, But there also comes a point in time where the trust that needs to be built between the parties that are at the table is incredibly important. And it took us, you know, from January of 2022 until about September of that year to get everybody in a place to say, "Okay, we're willing to look at this again. And then the negotiation went on from September till April. And so on April 25th, we made the announcement that we had agreements in principle. We didn't wait until everything was signed to say, here you go. So Calgarians were given the opportunity to see what the deal looked like in April. And then from April till October, the definitive agreements were in their signing stage. Calgarians had many opportunities to weigh in on how they felt about this. Um, during that five-month period, we did take those concerns seriously. Um, these are questions that you know we pose to administration at times. Um, administration replied to some of the questions that came during the press conferences. So I think the deal needed to be done differently to build the trust that was needed between the partners. And it's different making a decision when you're the only party at the table. Like when we have to debate on whether we should spend X amount of dollars on an infrastructure project that's only us, Um, it's different. When we're dealing with other partners, there has to be that sanctity of doing things in a way where trust and relationships can be formed.
1: I was thinking back to the first term of the last mayor and kind of the challenges that Nenshi faced. The biggest one, or one of the biggest ones, being the flood, which was a very immediate thing happening. You know, water's literally rising, people being forced out of their homes. And it's interesting to compare the, the state of the world, the state of the city, in these two different first terms. You're dealing with these more kind of slow-burning crises that are erupting to the surface, like thinking of housing crisis, opioid crisis, climate crisis, like all these things. I'm curious how you... I was talking to a friend, he was kind of like, in a way, Nenshi had it easy in the sense that this big calamitous thing happens that requires an immediate response, and you like you show up and you respond to it, and it's very tangible. What you're dealing with is significantly... Less tangible, and I'm curious the differences, I guess.
0: It's an interesting question, and you know if I reflect on it, it kind of it reminds me of when people who have ever experienced mental health issues or have ever had to take a loved one into emergency for a mental health issue, people will say this, if you are physically wounded, if you are bleeding or obviously have something broken. It seems like everyone rallies around to help you and they'll give you the support they need. But with a mental health issue, no one can see it. And so you're not viewed as an emergency unless you've physically done something, right? And so I think it's the same situation. The flood was a tangible thing. You could see the water. You could understand the science behind it. You know, it rained too much. There was a melt and water levels were rising and people were in some very serious and dire conditions. And that kind of tangible, visible thing is a call to action. You know, it it behooves you to do something. And so everyone rose to the occasion. When it comes to the really big and complicated issues that we're seeing around public safety, around addiction, around homelessness, the problems are gigantic. Yes, the flood was big. However, there was going to be a point in time when the water dissipated and then we had to rebuild. We are at a point in time where everything is coming at us all at once, and every agency must work together, every order of government has to work together, every business unit has to work together, or we won't get this right. But that's not how the world functions. We're very good at silos, and we're very good at, you know, specialized behavior. And so the things we're addressing are just more nebulous, they're more complicated, they're wicked problems, if I can use that terminology, So I think that's what differentiates things that were happening previously at a local level versus things that are happening now. And I think the other thing that compounds that is we now have um, the municipal fiscal gap report that came out that shows us how a series of offloading of responsibilities by federal and provincial governments, now that we see them and we've daylighted them, it shows us why we are in such a tough place as a municipality. So I think... The things that we didn't look at are now exposed to us. They're they're laid bare, and it's on us to deal with them.
1: So that's what Mayor Gondick has been up to. Jeremy Farkas has had a very different path over the past two years. After the election, he left town and returned. In dramatic fashion.
3: Farkas set out to complete the Pacific Crest Trail earlier this year, facing several challenges along the nearly 4,300 kilometer journey. Everything from sandstorms to frostbite, deserts, and mountain peaks, all to raise money for Big Brother's Big Sisters here in Calgary. Farkas ran
1: and hiked from Mexico to Canada, raising over $200,000 for Big Brother's Big Sisters. And he wasn't done. Earlier this year, he set out again, this time closer to home, to fundraise for the Alex.
0: Jeremy Farkas is halfway through an effort to summit 25 mountains in 25 days for charity.
3: He says he has regrets about what he did as a politician, and the trail has helped him learn some difficult lessons. Now, there are
1: different perspectives on this. Many Calgarians are enthusiastic about Farkas's charity endeavours including many of the progressives who voted against him. It's almost thrilling to be proven wrong about someone. Others are more skeptical and don't buy it. A friend of mine calls it Farkas's Redemption Tour, a way to rehabilitate his political image for the next run. If you look at the recent history of Calgary mayors, we actually don't have a track record of electing die-hard right-wingers but centrists. Al Dour, Dave Bronconye, Nahed Nenshi, and now Joti Gondik. In any case, Farkas is sounding more like those people these days. He used to rely on conservative talking points, but now you'll hear him using progressive buzzwords. When he tells his story, for example, he talks about how he's striving to do the work and do better. Farkas recently started a new gig as CEO of the Glenbow Park Ranch Foundation out at the Provincial Park between Calgary and Cochrane. And I spoke with him out there on a brisk October morning. Farkas talked about how he had leaned into being a conservative caricature when he was a councillor and mayoral candidate.
2: Well, there's a few pieces to that. First is probably youth and inexperience, so bluntly, I was probably one of the the youngest city (laughs) councillors ever elected. And coming into that with a certain type of life experience and bluntly a lack of life experience, it felt easy in the moment to say, well, I can just use what I learned at the campus Conservative Club. I can use what I can. I I read in these books from these libertarian thinkers to try to be that quote-unquote conservative choice, and that's what I had campaigned on in my run uh, in World 11 basically the almost the exact identical colors as Stephen Harper signs and deep Southwest uh, very conservative uh, parts of the city and as I grew more experienced I started to feel realize bluntly that that was a constraint that wasn't very realistic when you think about just the day-to-day operations what it actually entails to be a city councillor a lot of its municipal land use its planning its housing it's all of these things where if you're to sit in a room and start to think well if I'm going to do something I want to make sure it's the conservative thing to do it doesn't really work out and bluntly I think trying to be that conservative voice that I had campaigned on, I felt I was locked into that. I felt that uh, that was my my constituents were uh, demanding of me. That's what I'd campaigned on and I had to be that conservative guy. And to be be clear, I do describe myself as fiscally conservative, uh, socially progressive, live and let live. But there's some issues where, I blew them up just from my own lack of experience. It feels so fucking stupid of me in hindsight, say, uh, opposing, say, the parental leave policy for Calgary City councillors. You know, with some life experience, it's very clear to me that we want to attract the best quality uh, individuals from a broad Uh, cross-section of life. Uh, For me, sitting in that room at age 30, not having kids, uh, being able to uh, sort of put my lens of how the world should work, that was not, it was not helpful in that situation. It was not my, it was just a lack of experience that ended up exploding that as an issue. But I would say that there's a lot of what I did on council that uh, I'm proud of, that I I didn't, uh, let, let me frame a different way. I think that what this council is demonstrating more than anything else is the need for a sober second thought. You need somebody who is willing to question uh, these plans, question the bureaucracy, uh, be some of the conscience of some of these decisions as we're seeing them play out as it relates to say the arena or housing or other files. But to your point about sort of the progressive perception of me and whatnot, I think that why this is so challenging is that no person you know is either completely bad or completely good. So I think it's challenging for some people that only know me through sort of that conservative caricature to all of a sudden think, well, all of a sudden I'm agreeing with this person. Is something wrong with me? Is something wrong with him? Is he lying? Am I confused about my own politics? So it's a very uncomfortable position to be in, but I think the, the reality is that no, nothing out there is as good as you think or as bad as you think. So there's pieces to me that I think I've been able to tackle around ego, uh, around frankly valuing people around me that uh, think differently from me. And then as to the question of whether people can change, I think absolutely people learn and they grow, right? There's certain uh, mistakes that you make that Uh, things that you did when you're younger that just absolutely make you cringe. But I think the necessary part of that is you can't just say, well, that was then, this is now, I made mistakes. I think you actually have to tackle what the behavior was. I think you need to acknowledge perhaps the harm that that behavior caused, either to other people or to the rhetoric and the debate. And you need to identify how you want to uh, do better going forward. Let's go back in the story you lose the
1: election in 2021 mm-hmm. and then you go into exile as it were, <laughs> but, but a well-publicized exile and for a cause where you are fundraising for Big Brothers, Big Sisters, hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. Mm-hmm. And again, I find it very interesting how people interpret that. <laughs> yes. I have one friend who calls it the Jeremy Farkas Redemption Tour and And others look at it and are like, "This is awesome but i'm but I'm curious, yeah what what kind of after you lost, what led you to do that and and what it
2: changed for you? yeah, so after the election well we had a successful campaign in many parts despite uh losing the election, obviously that's the only <laughs> metric of whether it was a good campaign or not, but we raised a hell of a lot of money after losing the election i had a lot of folks reach out to me and say hey the next time you run for something i want to be the first to write you a check and this wasn't just uh, sort of boy moral support it was actual st- stack of checks on my d- desk already filled out paid to the order of whatever campaign and a light bulb went off in my head and i said you know what it doesn't necessarily have to be about politics i we, our family struggled with the loss of my grandmother, Elizabeth Tisha, during the course of COVID and the campaign. I didn't really feel like I had a, a great way to be able to recognize her, uh, her memory and to do something really big to, uh, to really honour the type of individual she was. She always wanted to do something like uh, the PCT or the Appalachian Trail, but uh, growing up uh, as a busy teacher with four kids, uh, many, many more uh, grandchildren, she was always very busy. But after her loss, I figured, is there some way that I can do what I wanted to, which is spend some time in the outdoors? And again, this was not something that was new to me. I'm a certified wilderness first responder. I had spent... uh, up until the election probably at least 300 or 400 nights and various backcountry trips and stuff like that so this is something i love to do this was not something that was manufactured or fabricated uh, for the sake of a, a redemption arc it was so and and bluntly if you're going to set out on a journey of about five thousand kilometers with just your backpack as sort of a, a political stunt that's just crazy that's absolutely batshit insane there are so many other we, easier ways to be able to get public attention Uh, One of the criticisms I receive as well was that a publicity stunt. Absolutely fucking yes, it was a publicity stunt because that is how you raise money. You just, you don't go quietly raising money. If you're wanting to recruit volunteers and small donors, you need to have a public hook. It wasn't just life lessons he was working through on the Pacific
1: Crest Trail in the United States. He was also thinking about what he was seeing in the political environment around him.
2: One of my takeaways from spending uh, that time running from Mexico to Canada was spending a lot of time crisscrossing various red and blue counties in the United States, especially at the time of the uh, January 6th hearings. So for me, prior to actually spending a lot of time in America, I looked at sort of these voices like uh, DeSantis and whatnot relatively favorably, right? You think, well, these are people who are standing up for their conservative values and so on. And it's sort of easy and abstract to think, well, you know, this is what a conservative should be whereas I was starting to realize you know the end game of some of this rhetoric and and damaging uh, politics was not a place that I wanted to be and just seeing it play out with the uprising on January 6th the insurrection seeing uh, some of the other legislation like don't say gay and stuff like that my fear is that there's a lot of sort of modern conservatives here in Canada and Alberta who are looking at sort of that Trump-DeSantis playbook as kind of an instruction manual, whereas for me on the ground, I really felt uh, a bit of cognitive dissonance, but it was a really good learning experience to realize that's not an instruction manual, that's a cautionary tale, right? So when I came back from my trip, I was thinking more generally about, all right, given I still have a voice, I still have influence, what can I do to try to I don't I don't want to say necessarily moderate uh, uh conservatism, but I wanted to make a contribution in a way that bluntly was trying to lower the temperature after I'd spent time raising the temperature and taking advantage of uh, some of the 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 chaos and the frustrations that people were feeling. Since he
1: returned from his trail adventures, Farkas has been quite vocal on LGBTQS issues, especially when it comes to trans kids and the conservative movement. When he was a young conservative activist in his 20s, volunteering for the Wild Rose Party in 2016, Farkas talked about being bisexual, and called on the party to champion LGBTQ issues. But it wasn't something that he talked about during his mayoral campaign, and he says he regrets that. During the provincial election campaign, as a commentator, he spoke about it more openly, talking about coming out to his best friend as a child and being bullied by them, and even considering suicide. feels like
2: we're so obviously in a backslide around some of the rhetoric around this, around trans rights, around uh, the so-called parental rights uh, movement, and I felt that That was the moment to be able to to share my story and to to more boldly speak out on stuff like this. But yes, I I am ashamed that I didn't speak to this issue more during the campaign. I always felt conflicted about it because I didn't want to be sort of tokenized to say, well, you know, vote for me because I'd be the first openly LGBTQ mayor in Calgary's history. Vote for me because of all these things. Uh, Some people on my team said, well, you know, this is going to... uh, make uncomfortable or conservative base and that was a consideration as stupid as that sounds but you know for me all I can say is now that I know better I try to do better right Right. and if I can speak to a more conservative audience and challenge them through commentary like this through op-eds and stuff like that I'm going to use that platform to try to uh, pull the discourse into a more uh, reasonable direction one that uh, frankly uh, points us away from what we're seeing right now in the United States.
1: And how would you say that challenge has been received by, by that kind of conservative base that was your, you know, the engine of your campaign? Yeah. You're kind of provoking that base in a way, challenging them. How's that been
2: received? Well, I'm trying to learn from my time in council in that, you know, I, I'm (laughs) probably a shit disturber by nature. You know, I like throwing out ideas, hashing that out, having that debate. But I think that it's important to uh, pick your hills to die on, so to speak, pick your battles. For me, I'm trying to be a little smarter around it or around saying, you know, don't just identify a problem, identify a solution here. Right. So like part of the, the problems of my behavior as a city councillor is, you know, it's so easy to poke holes. It's so easy to be a detractor. It's so easy to be a critic when the purpose is just to criticize. It's so much harder to actually come up with constructive Solutions, And that's what I'm trying to do in my own personal and my own professional conduct is, sure, you know, take shots every once in a while, but be prepared to come to the table with a solution. Say, what can we do together to be able to make this situation better? And be willing to lead and to take the hits. But as far as, you know, I would still describe myself as generally conservative, socially live and let live. And, you know, if it, if it makes... Uh, some folks out there, uncomfortable for me to say, well, every single child should grow up in a, with a family that loves them and a curriculum that supports them. You know, I, I bluntly, I don't have a lot of time for you. If, if this is something that's going to cause you discomfort, uh, the fact that <laughs> anybody everywhere in Calgary should be able to live a great life to be able to do what they want to, to be who they they want to be. If that makes you uncomfortable, then, you know, we, we might have to just part ways, right? But again, as you see in some of the uh, the provincial uh, parties right now, or rather, or sort of, as you see in some of the conservative parties provincially and federally, there is that tension, right? It's like, what do you do to pay lip service to a certain segment? Uh that you think is important to to cater to. But whereas for me, I'm just trying to live a decent life. I'm not trying to cater to anybody. And I think having that freedom has been very good for my own personal health, but it's also been really fruitful in terms of the friendships and uh, relationships I've been able to grow uh, amongst people that uh, are willing to look at me a little bit differently.
1: Yeah. You've talked about how you you're a shit disturber, which I think goes with the name, Jeremy. No, I'm just joking. Uh, but. but
0: to be constructive, <laughs> right? Let's yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. Constructive shit disturbing. Yeah. You love the political game. And so where is this all leading? Like when you look ahead, you, you haven't ruled it out uh, to my knowledge. So I'm just, yeah, I'm curious how you look at the future and, and we are two years from the next civic election. <laughs> and that is a question.
2: Yeah, that, that's always the, the flip side, right? It's the two years since the election, and it's only two years until the election. Look, uh, you know, every politician's going to give you the po- po- boilerplate, right? You know, haven't made a decision, um, would be honored to serve, will consult with my family and the community. Let me just be blunt with you. I felt that during the election— and the results, I felt the message to me was not never, I think it was not now, but I also felt that it came with a hell of a lot of homework to do, right? There's certain things about me, there's certain things about the, the timing of the moment, sure. There's certain things where we fell short in our campaign and our ability to speak to a number of issues. Uh, for me, I think that I deserve to lose that election. I think that, I, that my view of the role of mayor was way too myopic, it was too, it was too narrow, And I think that I gave a hell of a lot of people, a hell of a lot of reasons not to vote for me, right? So uh, for me, it feels like it's about doing the work, it's doing the homework. Second, when I came back from the Pacific Crest Trail, I had a number of very, I'm not going to say easy because campaigning is always tough, but bluntly, if you're parachuted in as a federal conservative candidate in Southwest Calgary, you're probably going to win. If you're parachuted in to a safe provincial conservative riding in Calgary, you're probably going to win, even if uh, the UCP was at a, a low a water uh, support mark. Those would have been relatively easy political comebacks for me. And I know many people have taken that opportunity to, say, springboard their services, a municipal councillor to run for MLA or to MP quite successfully. But for me, I felt that, you know, As dumb as it sounds, the the trail taught me there's not many shortcuts worth taking, right? What would I have learned? How would I have improved? And what homework would I have done if I had just said, all right, I'm going to run for provincial MLA and then I'm going to contribute to some of these problems that I felt were (laughs) plaguing us generally in our politics. You know, I I feel like I got a hell of a lot of homework to do. I need to show people that I can build teams, that I can paint a vision of a world, of a city they want to live in. I'm not at that place now, but you know, I wouldn't, I would say that I'd love to run again. I would run again in a heartbeat, but I feel if I were to run again based on the same skills, the same vision or lack of vision and campaign, I'd lose again for the same reason. So not never, but I'm still very interested, but I genuinely want to bring something better, something different that people want to be a part of rather than just, again, it, I don't think you build a city on no. I don't think you build a city on criticisms. I think you build a city on constructive criticisms and a vision for how to solve those problems. And is it the municipal level
1: that holds the most appeal for you? I find that interesting. Both you and Nahed. You know, people said for years, Nahed is going to, you know, go federal or go provincial or whatever. And it's like, no, he's, he's a... At bottom, he is a municipal, like municipal politics nerd. And like, he loves that stuff. And not that he doesn't love the other stuff, but like, <laughs> I just find it interesting that certain yeah. people just like gravitate towards that. I'm actually one of those people when it comes to journalism. I, like, I couldn't care less about federal politics. Yeah. Provincial politics is kind of interesting, yeah. but what's really interesting is city hall. And and I hear you saying that you're talking about like having a vision for the city. So is that, is yeah. that where the gravitational pull is for you?
2: You know, I, uh, a hundred times. Yes. Uh, I think it's, it's a place where you can work together with folks. You can actually get things done. And, you know, my, my critics or detractors will say that I never got anything done in council. Uh, I'm able to. Just in my course of the, my daily walk or drive around the city, see things that I had a, a hand in that I contributed to. Uh, there's an, that's an incredible feeling, especially just seeing some of the work around community associations, work that they do, other projects uh, within uh, my former ward. Uh, also, just the fact that you know I'm, I, I don't like being frustrated and angry all the time. You know, we're sitting right here on a park bench looking out at a just fantastic viewscape of the Rocky Mountains. We see the sweeping hills of the, the Glenbow Ranch. You know, I I just feel so much more at peace in settings like this. I feel like I like myself more in settings like this than sort of the partisan environment. There's still so much I have to learn and to contribute to. and ultimately persuade some of even my progressive friends to, you know, give a little bit more of a care about the finances and stuff like that, and maybe sometimes meet in the middle. But these conversations are only the kind that you can actually have around a council table, ideally. End of line.
0: Thanks for listening and see you again soon.
1: Listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Clausus and I'm the editor in chief of The Sprawl. You can find a transcript of this episode on our website at sprawlcalgary.com. And make sure to sign up for The Sprawl's weekly newsletter. That's the best way to follow what The Sprawl is up to, and you can sign up for that newsletter on our website as well. In this episode, you heard old news clips from CTV and Global News this episode was edited by Mike Todd our theme music is by Dan D'Agostino and Kenny Murdoch our C-Train narrator is Holly McConnell thanks for listening and see you next time